Exodus chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, Let us go and make sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men, so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the foremen went out, and Pharaoh said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, Why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told to make bricks? Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and make sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite foreman realized that they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, Why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, Your Word is a gift to us. Would You grant us grace to receive it joyfully, to receive it with clear minds, free from distraction, and to receive it humbly, ready to be shaped and molded and convicted and changed even by Your Word. 
pray you give Godwin great mercy, great boldness, great clarity in preaching your word to us. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I feel ready. So, um, VBS week is a crazy week, right? And uh, we do crazy things during VBS week. Uh, Keep your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 5, and we're going to dive in there in just a moment. It's good. (laughs) I like sports, but I'm not very athletic which is a problem because I love sports. So I especially like team sports because in team sports you can hide. When I was a little kid, I had an obsession with a particular uh, team sport, and I'm not talking about soccer or football or basketball. Those are great sports. I enjoy playing those sports. I'm talking about tug-of-war. Tug-of-war is a great team sport, and uh, most of you are likely aware of this. Uh, In two months, Sweden will host the World Championships of of Tug-of-War. Um, and, and I think you'll find it on like ESPN 6 or something like that. So you can, uh, you can plug into that in September, something to look forward to. Well, friends, do you realize that there has been a cosmic tug-of-war match that has been going on between God and between Satan for centuries, for millennia, really since the beginning of time, between God and Satan, a cosmic tug-of-war match? And it began in the Garden of Eden, as God was with his people, Adam and Eve, and everything was going swell, until this serpent shows up and tries to undermine God's authority. He whispers in the ears of Adam and Eve, and he tells them, you know what, I am a better master than God. And so the tug-of-war contest started in the Garden of Eden, God on one end, Satan on the other end, and right in the middle were the hearts of people. Well, friends, do you feel this war in your own life? Do you feel this tug-of-war in your own life, this war for your heart? Do you sense something pulling at you from both ends, something trying to master you from both sides? On one side, you've got the forces of this world. You've got your own flesh that's battling inside you. You've got Satan and his minions trying to pull at you, pull at your hearts, trying to tempt you to sin, trying to tempt you to discouragement and anger and all kinds of things, right? The gods of this world are trying to make you serve them, and so they're pulling at your hearts. They're trying to master you. Then there's the other side. You've got God pulling and tugging you towards him, working and intervening and acting in such a way that you will come closer to him. Do you feel that pull too? Psalm 18, verse 4 says, He reached down from on high and he took a hold of me. He drew me up out of the deep waters. That was intentional too. Psalm 40, verse 2, He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. So those are pictures of a God who's pulling at us, 
who's pulling at our lives, pulling at our hearts, drawing us away from the clutches of Satan. When we come to a section of Exodus where we see this cosmic tug-of-war match, Exodus chapter 5, God versus Pharaoh, and they're battling over the hearts of Israel. Who's going to be Israel's master? That's a question we have as we look at Exodus chapter 5 and as we look at the rest of this book. Friends, who is your master? Who do you serve? The God of the universe or the pharaohs of this world? Who do you serve? Who do you really serve? Not just in principle, but in actuality. Not just on Sunday mornings. It's easy to come to church, and of course, we're here to worship God and submit our lives to to him. That's why we're here, hopefully. But what about on Thursday morning? Who do you really serve? Do you serve yourself? Are you on the throne of your life? And everything you do, everything you think about, everything you work towards is to boost your ego and boost your sense of self. Is it another person, perhaps that you're romantically inclined towards, or a spouse, or um, a parent, or a child, and, and everything you do is to serve them? Now, there's nothing wrong with serving people. But there's something wrong with being mastered by a particular person. Is it your job? Is it your career that you're mastered by? Is it the American dream? And everything you do and think about and invest in is to build a bigger home or to, uh, to gain a better uh, vacation or to, to have a bigger bank account. Who is your master? Who do you really serve? Well, here's the main point of Exodus chapter 5. God may seem to be losing the war for your hearts. God may seem to be losing the war for your hearts, but he is the better master, and he will win in the end. I'll say that one more time. God may seem to be losing the war for your hearts, but he is the better master, and he will win in the end. And that's good news. Let me pray. Father, as we come before you and as we come before this text, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, Lord. We are in in desperate need to hear from you. Father, we are weak people. We are frail people. Our faith, faith is often weak and frail. And so, Father, we want to cling to you in the midst of all that we're going through today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first movement in our story here is verses 1 through 9. What happens when God pulls on the rope? What happens when God throws the first punch? What does that look like? We see that in the first nine verses here. Now, where do we end up in chapter 4? Well, we ended up with worship. Remember, um, God had just spoken to Moses, and Moses brings his whole family back to Egypt. and, And Moses and Aaron, they go before the elders and go before the Israelites And they tell the Israelites, hey, God's going to come down. God's going to deliver you. Things are going to get better. And so the people of God, they they, they get get their hymn sing on, right? They they start to worship. They bow down before God and worship. The people were joyful. They were hopeful. they, They were full of faith. So God's pulling on that rope. 
And then chapter 5 begins with God speaking through Moses. Verse 1 says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Literally, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. God is asserting his authority through Moses, his authority over Pharaoh. Now, thus says the Lord is a way of introducing someone with divine authority in the ancient Near Eastern culture. So in Egyptian culture in particular, it was the way that Egyptian leadership would prepare the people for Pharaoh's speeches. Because Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, he was considered like a god. Thus says Pharaoh. We see that in verse 10. We'll get there. And that essentially means, listen, everybody, because our God is about to speak. Listen up. So here, in verse 1, God is purposefully asserting his authority. He's saying, I have authority over you, Pharaoh, and so you better listen. You better obey me. Moses' request, as you'll see in verses uh, 1 and in verse 3, is for the people to leave Egypt and to come to the mountain in the wilderness and to worship. Now, this may sound at first like a, a temporary situation. You know, just let, let the people go, let these two million people go, and we'll go do some religious activities in the wilderness. Then we're going to come back to Egypt. It's a win-win. We appease our God, we're going to appease Pharaoh. Now, that's not what I think uh, Moses is actually requesting here. I think what he's saying is, stop. Stop this servitude of Pharaoh and start a new servitude under Yahweh. So God wants his people's hearts. He wants their worship. That's why Moses is standing there in the palace before Pharaoh. You think about tug-of-war, a good tug-of-war strategy, most of you know this, I'm sure, is you you get your, your folks lined up and then someone yells out, one, two, three, heave, right? And everybody pulls together. And you kind of harness your strength together, and the goal, of course, is not only to win, but to drag the other team through the mud, right? And this is kind of a one, two, three heave moment for God. So what do we expect to happen as God is harnessing his strength against Pharaoh in this moment? Well, we expect good things to happen. We expect God's people to be rescued, right? Who can withstand uh, God's tug-of-war strength? So God pulls. God throws a punch. But look what happens. Things go from bad to worse. Very quickly, Pharaoh, first he he defies God in verse 2. He says he doesn't even know this God, Yahweh. And then he orders greater oppression for Israel. So God pulls really hard and Pharaoh just stands his ground. God throws a punch against Pharaoh, and Pharaoh doesn't even seem to flinch. In fact, it feels like Pharaoh's throwing a punch back. Now imagine just for a minute you're you're Moses in the story. Imagine you're Moses. A couple weeks ago, you're moving around some sheep, and you're playing with some kids, you know, your boys, hanging out with your family. Everything's, Everything's going well. And here you find yourself, where do you find yourself? You're back in the palace You're in the palace, the place where you grew up, the place where everybody's trying to kill you. And something happened between the fields of Midian and the palace of Egypt. What happened? God showed up in Moses' life. Look at verse 3. This is in Moses' own words. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. 
And so his entire life has been turned upside down by this burning bush incident. The Holy God came down and touched his life and gave him confidence, confidence for this very moment in the palace. And Moses was confident. He did exactly what God wanted him to do. But things began to fall apart. When we follow God, when God is our functional master, we often expect things to go from bad to good or from good to great, right? I mean, we're following God. He's going to take care of things. But friends, things may actually get worse for you if you follow God. Things may actually get harder for you if you follow God. Things may actually get more complicated and confusing for you if you follow God. It certainly did for Moses. It certainly did for Israel. And it did for many people who made God their master in the Bible. Have you ever heard of the prosperity gospel? Have you heard of this this particular gospel? It's called the prosperity gospel. It's a rampant teaching in parts of the global church, parts of the American church. Here's what it teaches. If you're suffering adversity in some way, It is because you are not trusting or obeying God. You hear that? If you're not not obeying God, if you're not trusting God, then expect suffering in your life. That's what the prosperity gospel teaches. Therefore, if and when you properly worship God, he's going to bless you in the here and now. Your best life is now. That's what the prosperity gospel teaches. And he's going to remove your suffering. He's going to remove your adversity. Life will change for the better. And all you need to do is worship God and obey him perfectly. And that in the 21st century means give money to some dude on the television screen. And listen, this is awful teaching. This is awful teaching. It is not biblical. It is not good. And it is ruining churches across this country and overseas. You know, wealthy church leaders and pastors are going to parts of Africa and they're demanding pennies from poor African people because of this teaching to make them wealthy. It's a horrible, horrible thing. And it's ruining churches across the globe. Well, here's the problem. (laughs) The problem is we believe pieces of this prosperity gospel. All of us have this teaching at work in us in a small way, likely. It's a sneaky, subtle way that Satan pulls at our hearts and gets us confused. Let me illustrate. If you're a member of this church, maybe you think, hey, we've been faithful for 10, 20, 30, 40, 70 years. So, God's going to bless us with numerical growth. He's going to do it. If you're a student, God's going to reward hard work. God's going to reward your diligence with a wonderful job. If you're a parent and you've been raising your child, you've been teaching your child about Jesus from when they were young. And so God's going to save your kid, right? That's your assumption. If you're an upright employee, you've been doing, doing your work in, in a manner that that uh, honors God. Well, God's going to bless you, right? God's going to bless you with an upward-moving career, 
Or how about this? We can flip it. Maybe you're a health nut. You work out like 19 times a week and you have like three uh, protein shakes a day. Well, then you get frustrated with God when sickness comes to you. Or you're, you're a generous giver. You give, give to all kinds of charities. You give to the church. You give to people in need. You're, giving, you're constantly giving away your money and your stuff. But you get mad when your bank account runs dry. You're a spouse and you've been faithful and you've, you've been serving your spouse for years. And you question, why has God put a spouse in my life that's neglecting me? Now, where did all of these assumptions come from? Well, from believing a little bit of the prosperity gospel. As if God owes us anything. God doesn't owe us anything. Remember, church, Israel worshipped God at the end of chapter 4. Moses obeyed God at the beginning of chapter 5. But things got worse. And things may get worse for you, too. The Bible never teaches that if we trust and worship and obey God, then he will meet our expectations and give us everything we want. It's just the opposite, actually, in the Scriptures, often. Suffering and adversity is the path of the Christian. It's not the exception for the Christian life. It's the norm of the Christian life. That's not going to make a lot of money, but it's true. It's true. Now, if you're not yet a Christian and you're here with us this morning, then this teaching is totally unattractive to you. I mean, why in the world would you become a Christian, right? I mean, right now the pastor's telling you that things may get worse for you if you follow God. Why would you become a Christian? Why exchange a seemingly good master, whatever that situation is for you, why would you do that? Why would you exchange that for a seemingly bad master, God? Well, we have to keep reading this story in order to answer that question because, well, here's the answer. God is still a better master, as we will see. So God pulls on the rope. We see that in verse 1. We see that in the end of chapter 4. But Pharaoh holds his ground as you look at verses 2 through 9. Now check out Pharaoh's specific response in verse 2. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Now, Pharaoh isn't just saying, I don't know things about God. I've never heard of this Yahweh. Who is this guy? He's not just saying that. The word here for know in the original language implies much more of a servant-master relationship. So what Pharaoh is saying is, I don't have this servant-master relationship that you have, Moses, with this Yahweh. And so I don't recognize his authority, and therefore, I'm not going to do what you say. So this is a sarcastic dismissal of Yahweh. He can't believe Moses would have the audacity to assert Yahweh's authority over him. Remember, Pharaoh was considered a god amongst the Egyptians. So how can anyone make demands of Pharaoh? So he boldly defies God in verse 2. Pharaoh is a good case study in the psychology of unbelief. Have you ever thought about how unbelief affects our life or how, on the opposite end, how belief impacts our lives? Well, it starts with, first of all, ignorance. I don't know God. I don't trust God. 
That's the first step in the psychology or the progression of unbelief. The second step, it, the second step is it leads to an actual resistance of God. He first says, I don't know God. Then he says, I'm not going to let your people go. I'm not going to do what you say. I'm not going to obey you in this area of my life. I'm not going to relinquish control in this area of my life. That's the second step. Um, ignorance that leads to uh, resistance. The third step is wickedness, malevolence. Pharaoh says, I don't know you, Yahweh. I'm not going to let your people go. But then he takes it a step further, and he actually persecutes the people of Israel. He becomes nasty. Not only do I reject you, not only do I not want to follow you, but I'm going to mock those who do. I'm going to slam and attack those who do. Doubting God leads to resisting God, which leads to being just plain nasty. And this is what we see often, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others. There's a good lesson here for us. It's so important, church, it's so important to cultivate a robust belief in God as master. If our doubts leads to resistance and nastiness, then we ought to work hard at nurturing a trust in God. It's important to do everything you can to get in and stay in that posture where God is above you and you are his servant. Because if you don't, if you begin to nurture doubt in your life, and that happens ever so subtly, right? It happens ever so quickly. Just a a little anger because something didn't go your way. Just a little frustration because your plans didn't come through. And now, well, you start to doubt. You start to doubt God's love and care for you. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves asking the same question that Pharaoh did. Who is this Yahweh? Who is this guy? Does he care about me? I think there are better masters out there. Well, be careful, friends, because doubt leads to resisting God, and resisting God will lead to more nastiness and wickedness in your life. But if you sow the little seeds of of belief and trust, it's going to produce good fruit, good things. I was counseling a couple in our church just a few weeks ago, and this is the second or third time that I'd met with them and when we're sitting there in my office. And, and you can just see on their face, they, they're going through some difficult things physically, emotionally, in their marriage, etc. And, and you can see on their face, just even as I sat down with them, how much they were hurting. But this is the second or third time I was with them, and I'm, I'm watching them because there they are, and they both have their Bibles in front of them, and you can almost see the white knuckles as they were clinging to this book. It was a picture to me of their faith as they were going through these difficult times. They were nurturing trust. They were not nurturing doubt. They could have. And it was showing up in their lives with the fruit, with good fruit. What does it look like for you and I to nurture trust instead of nurturing doubt, especially when things are difficult? It's hard to do. The second scene, Exodus chapter 5, verses 10 through 21. Here we see what happens when Pharaoh pulls on the rope, when Pharaoh throws a swing at God and God's people. What happens? Well, one thing to notice is the chain of command. You, you, You see Pharaoh at the top, 
You see the slave drivers, the, the Egyptian slave drivers underneath him who are taking orders from Pharaoh. Then you see the Jewish foremen. These are Israelite foremen that are kind of leading bands of slaves. Pharaoh, slave drivers, the Jewish foremen. Notice here again how the slave drivers and the Jewish foremen introduce Pharaoh's orders. Look at verse 10. Then the slave drivers and the foremen went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says. Again, literally, thus says Pharaoh. Thus says the divine one. You better listen to this. Not only does Pharaoh think he's a god, not only do the Egyptians think he's a god, even the Jewish foremen show some reverence in this moment. You know, Pharaoh's orders are clear to Israel. You've got to get your own straw. So to make bricks for Pharaoh's cities, the Egyptians would provide straw to mix with mud that the Israelites would get from the Nile River, and they would make these bricks. And so obviously having the people scatter all over the land to pick up straw, that's going to delay the whole process. It would make the whole thing harder. So this was not a good situation for Israel because they had to make the same number of bricks. I'm going to state the obvious, but it's worth saying at this moment. Pharaoh is not a good master. Pharaoh is not a good master, right? He may provide Israel with work. He may provide a sort of secure life for the Israelites, a a semblance of security, but they are still slaves. He's not interested in their welfare. He's not interested in, in anything except making them and using them, making them serve himself and using them for his gain. It's fascinating to see how the Jewish foremen respond to Pharaoh in verse 15. This is after they've been beaten. They're upset. They come to Pharaoh. Look at verse 15. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, and yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. It's fascinating. I mean, they still recognize that Pharaoh is their master. They're depending on Pharaoh. You see, they could have and they should have cried out to God in that moment. That's what Moses does later. We're going to get there. Moses brings his complaints and his laments before God. Israel still has two feet firmly planted in Egypt. Even amidst slavery and adversity, they viewed themselves as under Pharaoh. They forgot to run to God. They forgot to run to God. And this is something that we do too. We give ourselves to masters who are not good to us. Whether this means a destructive relationship, whether this means destructive people in our lives, whether this means destructive addictions in our lives, or particular sins that we have been camped camped out on for, for decades, it's easy for us to be enslaved to masters who don't treat us well. Masters who provide maybe some semblance of stability, it seems like they're offering good things. It seems like the circumstances of our life are going well. But these masters, they demand more of us. They use us for their own gain. They they want the, 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 the pound of flesh. Pharaoh takes away life. He steals away their humanity. He's like a really bad boss. Uh, You've probably, hopefully you haven't, but you've maybe worked under a really bad boss who over time conditions you to serve them in such a way 
where you're doing everything for them, but you're a shell of yourself. Have you ever worked under someone like that? It's awful. That's what the gods of this world, the pharaohs of this world do. They sap our lives away. They steal away our humanity. They are not good masters. Friends, who do you serve? Who is your master? If it's not God, then are they treating you well? Maybe the world standards, according to the world standards, you think, you know what, I think I am doing well under this this regime over here. I'm safe, I'm secure, my life is going okay, but are you really better off? Is your heart better off? If God is your master, the circumstances of your life may get more difficult, but God will never take advantage of you. He's not looking to use you for his own gain because he's self-sustaining. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need to gain anything from you. He's a giver of life. He's a restorer of life. He's interested in blessing you. So the pharaohs of this world, they steal away our life. And one of the things we see here uh, that Satan tries to do is he aims to destroy our relationships. Pharaoh has been scheming to divide the Israelites since verse 9. Let's look at verse 9. Pharaoh says, make the word harder for the men so that they keep working and pay it no attention to lies. He's talking about Moses there. He's trying to drive a wedge between Moses and Israel. He's created a situation where listening to Moses and trusting Moses meant more difficulty for Israel. And it paid off. Look at verse 20 and 21. When they, the Israelite foremen, left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Pharaoh's strategy drove a wedge between Moses and the Jewish foreman to the point where the Jewish foreman even called down a curse on Moses. They call on God to judge Moses. This is what happens, brothers and sisters, when we are mastered by someone other than God. When the pharaohs of this world pull at our hearts and we give in, good relationships get messy. Friendships get strained. Husbands and wives start to argue. Parents and teenagers have a hard time finding common ground. God's design for all relationships is that they blossom and bring life to each other. Satan's design, as, it's, as we see here, it's clear, is to drive a wedge. It's to create tension and anger and bitterness. And here's the saddest, saddest part of this whole thing. We often don't have the kind of self-awareness to, to see what's exactly going on, to recognize that something else is at work in this tense relationship. What we what we tend to do is we tend to point fingers and dig our heels in and get angry and grow bitter. But what if, what, what if we stopped for a moment and asked ourselves the question, who is really in charge? What if we backed up and we took a 30,000-foot look at the situation, at this tense situation? Would we see the gods of this world pulling at our hearts? Not just my heart, but the, the person who's sitting across from me. And if we could just recognize that Pharaoh or Satan is at work, could we gain some perspective and humble ourselves? Listen, maybe you had a fight with your spouse on the way to church this morning. Maybe you're, you're at odds with one of your children. 
Maybe you've got some tension with a coworker. Maybe there's, um, maybe there's a brother or sister even here in this church who you haven't spoken with for years. Would you recognize that Satan is currently winning the tug-of-war match for your heart? Would you stop serving his purposes? Would you put yourself under a better master? Do you want to get right with your spouse? Do you want to get right with your coworker? You first need to get right with God. Humble yourself before him and then go and humble yourself before someone else. Can Exodus 5 help us make sense of the horrible racially charged events of this past week? I think it can help us. Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, Brent Thompson, Patrick Zamaripa, Michael Kroll, Michael Smith, Lorne Aarons. Those are the police officers in Dallas as well as the African-American men in Minneapolis and Baton Rouge that were killed. The pharaohs of this world have one thing in mind right now. Drive a wedge between people. Drive a wedge deep between the races. Drive a a wedge between political parties. Drive a wedge between people with differing opinions on this situation. So we have a big problem because here's the deal. Satan is winning. Satan is winning this racial tug-of-war match in this country right now. He's getting at the hearts of people, and everybody is left hurt. Everybody is left angry and completely confused. And worse, people on both sides are acting like the Jewish foreman. They're lobbing down curses, verbal grenades on each other. This is all so very sad, isn't it? And Satan... And Satan, the prince of this world, is laughing through this whole situation. He's laughing and enjoying the situation because his plans are working. So what can we do? Let me give you two things we can do. I can't say everything I want to say because of time, but let me say two things. First, stop calling down curses on the other side and start really listening to the other side. Stop calling down curses on the other side and start really listening to the other side. It doesn't matter which side you sympathize with. Maybe, you're, maybe you're, your uh, Facebook page is full of Black Lives Matter posts. Or maybe your Facebook page is full of All Lives Matter posts. But it doesn't matter which side you're on. Would you take some time to really listen to our African-American brothers? Would you take some time to really listen to our African-American sisters, perhaps that are even here in this church? Would you take some time to ask questions of police officers that you might know that you're friends with? Sympathize with them. Weep with them. Stop calling down curses on the other side. Second, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Now, why would I say that? I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to say that. We're in a church. You're going to expect that I say that. But why would I say preach the gospel after what we just went through this past week? Well, it's because true unity can only happen before the cross of Jesus. It's the only place we can never find real unity, racial or otherwise, in any other setting except before the cross. 
Because at the cross of Jesus, the playing field is leveled. There is no resumes. There's no black or white. There is no um, um, successful people and unsuccessful people. There is nothing except sin at the foot of the cross. And that's something we all have in common. There's something else at the foot of the cross, too. There's grace. There's grace for every kind of sinner. And that means, church, that we, as a gospel-preaching church, offer a message that is entirely different than any other message that is out there, any other message on social media or that's being trumpeted by the news media. We offer the best news. And so we've got to preach the gospel. So we stop calling down curses. We start really listening. We start really relating. And we tell them about Jesus. Because Jesus was a person of justice. Jesus was a person of mercy. Jesus wept when one of his best friends died. We tell them about Jesus. And and let us weep with those who weep. Let us cry out for our country. How long, O Lord? How long will you tarry? How long will you withhold your mercy from your people? Come quickly to save us. God pulls and Pharaoh seems to stand still. Pharaoh pulls and the whole world seems to shake. Is that the final, final answer to this whole thing? Well, look at verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 1. Here's the final pull. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. When things go from bad to worse, when relationships are strained, when everything around us is telling us that God is losing and Satan is winning, We are tempted to despair like the Jewish foreman. We're tempted to lob curses. But Moses gets it right, doesn't he? Moses is hurting. Moses is confused. Moses doesn't understand what's going on. But what does Moses do? He takes it to God. Because God is his master, not Pharaoh. So he takes his laments directly to God. Brothers and sisters, you may be at your wit's end. You've given everything you can to God. You've been faithful, but things are not going well for you. You've already been crying out to God. What do you do? You keep going back to God. That's what you do. You you keep, just like Moses, you keep going back to God. The well may be dry when you go there, but that's the only place you're going to find water. That's the only place. So you keep running back to the well. You keep, keep taking your concerns and laments to God. This is a dark passage if we end with chapter 5, but look how God answers Moses' prayers. God says, hey, I'm going to do it. I'm going to act against Pharaoh. The final pull against Pharaoh is about to happen. We're going to see that as we look in the chapters to come, and God will be victorious over Pharaoh, and he will rescue his people. So that's coming. I want to point out one more passage to you. It's in Genesis. Let's go back to Genesis, flip over a few pages. It's on page three of your pew Bible. We're going to end here. Genesis chapter three. This is where the cosmic tug-of-war match 
started. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God is cursing the serpent after that little interaction with Adam and Eve. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. So there's going to be two teams. God is with the woman and her offspring, and that's one team. And there's another team, Satan, and he's got some offspring too. He's got some members of his team, and they are going to be in constant war against each other. So here God's predicting exactly what we've been talking about, this tug-of-war match. But look at the end of verse 15. He will crush your head. He is the seed of the woman. It's the descendants of the woman. He will crush your, the serpent's head. And you, the serpent, will strike his heel. Unlike Israel in the book of Exodus, we know exactly who and how the serpent's head gets stomped. Satan struck the heel of Jesus at the cross, didn't he? He injured him. He wounded him. But just when you thought Satan had won, just when Satan thought he had won, he didn't. Just when Satan thought he made the final pull to get Jesus in the mud, Jesus flips the script. At the cross, at the empty tomb, Jesus crushed Satan's head. Jesus put Satan in the mud. Jesus died to put an end to the gods of this world. Jesus died to smash the manacles of sin so that we can go free, like Israel is about to go free in a few chapters. Jesus died to crush the enemy, which is death, so that we can have eternal life. So today, life can indeed be hard. We still feel the war for our hearts between God and Satan. We certainly felt that this past week. But we have a new confidence as we try to persevere, as we try to battle on. A confidence Israel never had because Jesus, this is what we know, Jesus has put Satan in the mud. Let's pray. Father, these are some dark days that we find ourselves in as the church, as a country. We look around and we wonder, why in the world is this happening to us? It's hard. Many of us are struggling with our own personal trials and battles, and we feel like we're losing. We feel like Satan is winning as he pulls at our hearts and he tempts us towards sin and discouragement. Oh, Father, would you look upon our needs as a country? Would you look upon our cries and needs to you as individual people. Would you hear our cries? Would you intervene? Would you act? Would you help us to wait on you as you answer our prayers? In Jesus' name, amen.